So today, as we jump back into 1 Corinthians, uh, we've been in a lot of really heavy topics lately, and it's not going to let up anytime soon. It's just going to keep rolling. And uh, as we look at today's text, uh, we took last week to really kind of give ourselves a foundation before we jumped into these next two weeks. Today and next week would be kind of similarly themed. And last week, we really kind of wanted to take a step back and look at the whole purpose and goal of marriage so that we could kind of set ourselves up and have a foundation to stand upon as we jump into these uh, next two sermons. And um, the reality for us always is that as people, we know that we do need help. We all need lots of help. And as a church, we need to sometimes address difficult topics. We don't want to avoid the the difficult topics. We don't want to avoid the awkwardness because so much of our personal lives is us trying to dodge awkwardness, isn't it? We're always trying to, you know, dodge people or conversations or whatever it is, trying to get ourselves out of certain situations because we just don't like awkwardness. And so sometimes we even avoid dealing with very important issues. And this takes its uh, form in many different ways. You know, husbands don't want to talk to their wife about something that's concerning them, or we don't want to talk to our kids about something because it's too awkward, or we don't want to confront our friend in something we saw because it's just too awkward. And we'd rather have the security, and it's really a false security because we have a fear of man rather than a fear of God, and so we tend to avoid a lot of important things that need to be talked about, and this is one of those things. And this is why Paul is talking to the church about this, because he loves the church. He loves the people in the Corinthian church. And the church is here to help the people on earth find hope and find freedom from the things that enslave them. But if we just avoid talking about those things, how can they be freed from that? If we're like, oh, we don't, we, it's just it's too awkward. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to bring it up. But we, we're here because we want to see people freed from the things that enslave them, the things that trap them. And this Corinthian church is no different than modern church. They have problems. We have problems. We actually have very similar problems. They were also a people that were entangled in all kinds of messes in their life. They were living life according to their own ways, their own passions, and basically wandering around through life like they're in the dark, just kind of putting their hands out, hoping they can get through life. But they don't really know where they're going. They're just kind of wandering. And Paul is here to help them find their way. And so today in particular, we look at this topic again of marriage, and in particular, Paul's going to be addressing a careless attitude that the Corinthians have towards sexual sin, uh, the flippant attitudes these Christians had towards sexual immorality. The church was letting the culture around them dictate what they thought was okay, what was permissible, what was allowable when it comes to marriage and sexuality. They were letting the culture define sexuality and marriage. Does this sound at all familiar to us? So the Corinthians were going through the same exact thing. This is, there's nothing new under the sun. It just kind of comes in cycles throughout different generations and cultures. And so they were letting culture dictate to them what is marriage and the goal of marriage and what is sexuality and the goal of sexuality rather than having God and his word form their thoughts and opinions. So let's open up. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. I want to pray, and we're going to ask the Lord for wisdom. We're going to ask the Lord to give us discernment. We're going to ask the Lord to give us clarity. 
We're going to ask the Lord to give us confidence in his word. Father in heaven, we, we sit here in this room and we hold these books. We call them Bibles. But this book contains not just stories about you, not just information about you, but these books contain your word, your word. Your word is what reveals your heart and your mind, your desires, your will. It reveals who you are. And here we have these, these books in front of us. And we so just take them for granted. We, we minimize them. We compartmentalize somehow our faith from the rest of our life. But your word contains eternal life. It, it contains the promises of eternal life. And so we don't want to take your word for granted. We want to open your word today. And as we ask every week that your Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth, that your truth would find a home in our hearts, that it would go into our ears or through our eyes as we read, and it would rattle around in our minds. It would maybe be like sandpaper to some things that we kind of push back against, but ultimately that your word would renew our minds, and eventually it would travel down the 18 inches down into our hearts and it would find a place in our heart and it would transform our hearts and we'd be conformed in the image of your son. And so we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would guide us into this truth today. Help us. Give us wisdom in this noisy culture. That your wisdom would cry aloud to us in the noisy street. And that we would hear wisdom calling out and we would heed the call of wisdom. Help us, Father. Help us, Holy Spirit. By your grace and through your word, because of your Son, we ask all these things. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Very fascinating, interesting dynamic, sometimes confusing section of scripture. So we're going to do our best today just to pick this apart. And again, just asking the Lord to help us understand what's going on here and what Paul is speaking to the Corinthians that is so pertinent for us today. He starts off in verse 12 by saying, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or don't you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. A lot of stuff going on here. The first thing he says here is he says, all things are lawful for me. And you might read that and go, what is he saying here? What does that mean? Why is Paul saying all things are lawful for me? But what Paul's doing here is he's actually quoting a, a very popular sentiment of that day. Some of your Bibles might actually even have quotation marks in there to show that this is a quote. So he's saying what they say. I, I hear you talking. You're saying all things are lawful for me. This was a common thing that the Greeks would think. The Greeks, in this time, they were largely adherents to the, the teachings of Plato, which is called Platonism. Plato, he taught that the body and physical life is just this temporary thing, inconsequential to spiritual matters because this is a physical body and then we have a soul, which is totally separate from our body. So Platonism really teaches to compartmentalize our physical being from our spiritual being. So a lot of the Greeks, they would say, well, I can do whatever I want with my body because it really doesn't matter because this is just temporary, but the soul is what lives on, so I can do whatever I want now. All things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I please. And this mentality of Platonism was very common in the Greek culture, and, and the Christians even adopted this because it was their backgrounds. And we can even call this, I, I've called this, you may have heard me uh, say this before, but kind of a, a Christian version of this that we even do today is kind of a Christoplatonism. It's Platonism, but it's with this kind of Christian twist to it. Somehow, as Christians, we're able, wrongly, to compartmentalize what we do with our life, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, what we watch, what we listen to. And we say, well, that doesn't really matter. It doesn't really affect my spiritual life. So here's my physical life. Here's my social life. Here's all these things. And then I've got my Bible time. I've got my fellowship time. I've got my church time. I've got my community group time. But then here's the rest of my life. I give God. And we, and we do this thing where we say, I'm going to give God, say, let's say 10%, because that's a popular number in the church. I'm going to give God 10% of my life and my time and my hobbies and all those things. But the other 90% is for me. We do that with our money sometimes, don't we? Oh, a 10% towards, towards God and the ministry. But the other 90% of my money, I get to spend it however I want. That's Christoplatonism. Give God his little portion and then we keep the rest. And the Greeks, they were just celebrating this Platonism. And as Christians, we do the same thing even today. We have our Jesus time, we've got our me time. We don't really consider the, the normal aspects of life, the common everyday aspects of life, what we do in our downtime. We don't think of that, we don't filter that through our faith or God's word. We just, we have these compartments. We don't think twice about these things. And sometimes if we do actually think twice about it, we'll very quickly dismiss it. Well, you know, it's not really that bad. Well, you know, my friend does that too. Or, you know, it's just, I mean, everyone in this culture does this. We easily dismiss it if we ever even think twice. And this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They're quoting their cultural norms. All things are lawful for me. What they're basically saying is, it's my life. I can do whatever I want with my life. No one can judge me. I'm free to do as I please. All things are lawful for me. And we do this as well. We have other ways that we maybe say it. We say, well, I have the right to be happy, don't I? 
I have the right to be happy. Or, or we'll say, well, whatever makes me happy, you should just be happy for me. I know you don't agree with this or that in my life, but you should just be happy for me. What's so wrong about this thing that I'm doing? You can't judge me for this. Just Why can't you just be happy for me? Or we say things like this. Well, as long as it doesn't actually hurt anyone, then what's the big deal? And it's our way of saying, hey, all things are lawful for me. As long as I'm not hurting anybody, then what's the big deal? Now, there's nothing wrong, church, with the desire to be happy. There's nothing wrong with the desire for comfort or a nice vacation, obedient kids, all those things that we pine for and we desire. There's nothing wrong with those desires. But when we make those things into ultimate goals and our lives start revolving around those things and those things start dictating now our response to life, our feelings, our emotions, our decisions, now we've got a problem. And so Paul is addressing this same exact attitude towards this particular issue of sexual immorality and sensuality. And we somehow divide, though, just like they were, our physical and even our emotional life from our spiritual life. We sin on Saturday, but that's okay because we're going to go to our church on Sunday. It's like a series of, of debts and deposits. We think that when we sin, we've kinda, we're in debt with God now. And so what do we do? We make some deposits back into that that bank account. We do a couple good deeds. We spend 10 minutes in the Bible. We go to church. And all of a sudden, we think that we're refilling that debt that we've just incurred. Debt, deposit. Debt, debt, debt. Deposit, 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 deposit. Debt, deposit, deposit. Ooh, now I'm ahead of the game. Now God owes me. Look, God, I went to church four weeks in a row. Now what are you going to do for me? I mean, we've done this, right? I remember when I was a kid playing right field because that's where I played. And I would just say, Lord, I would say, God, God if, if, if the ball just doesn't get hit to me, then I'll stop being mean to my sister. Uh, I'm, I'm making deals with God. And so now, all of a sudden, if he, if he does that, then, then I feel like I owe him. And if it doesn't work, then now he owes me. God, why did you let, we lost the game because of me. Now you owe me. And we, we don't do this like, we don't spell this out in our life, but this is how we live. Debt and deposit, back and forth. And so Paul hears their response to his command of sexual purity that we assume he had with them before when he was in Corinth. And they're saying, hey, all things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I want. And so Paul here now is saying, in his response, saying, ah, eh, I don't think so. That's not really how it works. All things aren't actually lawful for you. But even if all things were lawful for you, he's saying not all things are helpful. So you see how this is kind of going back and forth? He's quoting them saying, all things are lawful for me. He goes, eh, but not all things are helpful, even if they were lawful, which they're not all lawful. But even if they were, not all things are helpful. And he also adds to that, and also, because then he repeats them again, all things are lawful for me. And he says, yeah, even if that was true, I don't want to be dominated by anything. Just because it's lawful, and he's not necessarily saying that what they think is lawful, but he's saying, even if it is lawful, why would you want to be controlled and dominated and enslaved by anything? Even if it is lawful and it's okay, even if it is okay, why would you want to do that anyway? Those things aren't even helpful for you. Just because they're okay, they're not helpful for you. Just because they're okay, you're going to be dominated and enslaved by these things. 
And so he goes on and he now quotes another one that is common in their day, this kind of interesting statement. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach's meant for food and God's going to destroy both. That's the Corinthians way of saying, look, hey, I've got a stomach and I'm hungry. There's food. Doesn't it make sense that I should just eat a bunch? And guess what? Eventually God's going to destroy this body and food's going to be non-existent, so we might as well live it up. That's what they're saying. Food's meant for the body, body for food. God's going to destroy both. Why don't we just live it up? They're literally actually saying to Paul, YOLO. Right? That's what they're saying. They're going, look, hey, I've got a stomach. I'm hungry. There's a great steak. You only live once. Let's do this. God's going to destroy everything in the end, so let's just live large while we can. That's what they're saying. That's just exactly what they're saying. And Paul responds, no, 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 no. No, see, you don't understand. You don't understand. Specifically speaking of sexual immorality, he's pushing back on the Corinthians because their sexuality, their sexual desires, their permissible attitudes towards all things sexual have dominated their pattern of life. And so they're using this phrase, food meant for the body, body for the food. That's what they're saying is, look, I've got sexual desires. I'm a man, I'm a woman, I've got these desires and there's a man or a woman, so let's live it up. Because guess what, in the end, our bodies are gonna be gone anyway, so let's live it up right now. Let's just, let's just enjoy these things however we want. All things are lawful for me, so I can pursue anyone and as many people as I want, however I want, because eventually this body's gonna be gone, so I might as well enjoy it while I got it. And so they're using a common phrase, food for the stomach, stomach for food, as a way of saying, look, hey, this is, this is the body God has given me, and he's going to destroy it. So why can't we just go do anything we want? Because, hey, all things are lawful for us. And he's saying, no, you don't understand. And he's looking at them. He's saying, look, your culture, uh, the, the sexual passion in this Greek culture is dominating and controlling you. Rather than God's word, rather than his promises, rather than his design for sexuality and marriage, the culture is. They're letting selfishly motivated pleasures and desires control them. And so he's saying that even if it was lawful, and he's not necessarily saying that it is, depending on what they're talking about, doesn't mean it's actually helpful. And even if it is lawful, doesn't mean we should be ruled by these things. And this isn't just for sexuality, it's for anything. This is for money, this is for comfort. Even if it's lawful to have a lot of money, which it is lawful to have a lot of money, doesn't mean you also want to be controlled by money. Even if you desire comfort, there's nothing wrong with desiring comfort. It's lawful as a Christian to be comfortable, but we shouldn't be ruled by our comfort. So when the Lord asks us to move out in faith, we say no because all of a sudden our comfort rules us. We don't want to be generous with our money because our money rules us. So even if things are lawful, does not mean that we should be controlled by these things. Of course, he's speaking specifically of sexuality, but this is a, a law for everything. And particularly, Paul has in mind things that aren't actually lawful. That's what he's pushing back on. So he's not agreeing with them that what they're positing to him is actually lawful, but what he's actually pushing back on are things that the sinful ways that they've been misusing and abusing marriage and sexuality. They've lost sight of something far more important. This is what he says to them. This is his response. When they say, food for the stomach, stomach for the food. Look, I've got this body. I've got these desires. I see someone I'm attracted to, so why can't I live it up? Here's what his response is. 
to the saying, food for the body, body for food. He goes, no, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but it's meant for the Lord. And the Lord is meant for the body. So he takes their food for the body quote, and you know what he does? He just drops the mic with the gospel on him. They're going, hey, Paul, food for the stomach, not for food. He goes, no, no, no. Your body's meant for the Lord. Drop the mic, walk away. He's saying, you've got it all wrong. Uh, you're using that quote, but you're using it wrongly. You've got the wrong things in place. The body is not meant for food. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. The body is not meant for just earthly pleasures. The body is meant for the Lord. And so he's turning this on its head. And so therefore, he's saying, just because you have sexual impulses doesn't mean we should give in to them in every way or context that we think is okay. Because our body is meant to glorify the Lord and we have become one with Christ. So men, just because you might say, well, what's the big deal? It's natural for me. As a man, it's natural for me to have sexual desires. So it doesn't matter if I look at this or I look at that or I think about this. It's just some imagery What's the, what's the big deal about pornography? It's not like I'm actually doing anything physical. What's the big deal? I'm not hurting anyone. Or you might say, well, it's just lust in my heart. It's just in my mind and no one knows about it. It doesn't affect anything in my life. What's the big deal? No big deal. And we say, well, it's, it's permissible. It's okay because I'm not, I'm not actually doing anything. So all things are lawful for me. Or Women. You might say, well, I don't understand what the big deal is. I, I have needs as a woman to be loved and cherished, be satisfied, and my husband just isn't that way. He doesn't quite understand me. There's nothing wrong with connecting with another man who pays attention to me. It's not like we're doing anything. We're not doing anything physical. We're just really good, close friends. He, he understands me. He, he feels something my husband doesn't give to me, but, but it's okay because we're not doing anything physical. All things are lawful for me. It's my body, it's my heart, and it was made this way to desire the companionship of another man. I'm not quite getting that from my husband. And we find ways to justify these things, to minimize these things, to somehow convince these, ourselves that all things are lawful for me. And maybe we don't think all things are lawful, but we actually will create our own laws and we'll say, we can go this far. We become the establisher of truth and law. These things are lawful for me. I know those things are wrong, but these things are lawful for me. Now, church, just because these natural impulses are there, and the reality is some of these things I'm saying are actually God-given natural impulses and desires. God created sexuality, and it's a good thing that God created sexuality. It's not bad. It's not evil. But just because we have these natural impulses and desires, these desires that are given by our maker, by our designer, these desires were not made, though, for sexual immorality, sexual sin, using them and abusing them wrongly. No different than anything else. You shouldn't use any gifts or any talents you have for evil, for wickedness, for sin. Not just sexuality, anything. You shouldn't use your time to do evil things. You shouldn't use your personality, your character, your background. You shouldn't use any of that stuff for evil means, including your sexuality. 
And it's true, yes. Paul's saying we were, we were made with these sexual desires as the good part of God's creation. But see, that's the key, though. They were made by God as good gifts for his good purposes. The purposes he has for our sexual union and our sexual desires. Remember last week, uh, I talked a, a bit about marriage and dating and the, the great goal and purpose of marriage and dating and how we use our, these relationships for our own desires, our own purposes, rather than the great and grand purpose that it's meant for. Uh, and, and what happens, the example I use, it's like, you know, when you have a, a, something, a nail you got to nail into the wall, you can't find your hammer, so what do you do? You find a drill or you find, you know, your wife's favorite vase or something like that. And you use that as a hammer because that's all you got. And so we all of a sudden use things for what they aren't intended for. And sometimes we can kind of get by with it. We get the nail and it's a little crooked, but hey, it works. The picture hangs. And we can kind of go through life and we can use and abuse God's gifts. And we can kind of see certain aspects of it somehow be redeemed here and there. And, but we end up finding ourselves in a mess. We find ourselves empty dissatisfied, unfulfilled, because we're misusing this great gift, this great thing that God has given us, and we're using it wrongly. You guys have ever been up on a ladder before? Yeah, ladder, you know, just big old ladder. What's at the top of the ladder? What does it say at the top? It's not a step, right? You go to the top of the ladder, and it says at the top, it's not a step. What happens, and it's, sometimes it's like that one that flips down that holds the paint can, right? That one definitely says not a step. What would happen if you stepped on that, that little flap that comes down? You'd tumble right over, right? Because the manufacturer knows, the maker of that ladder knows, this is not intended to be used as a step. Trust me on this. It won't go well for you. Now, we can all day long, we can say, well, but I own this ladder now. That's mine. The manufacturer doesn't own this anymore because I purchased the ladder I own it. I can use it for whatever I want. All things are lawful for me. I can use this ladder however I want. That's true. Totally true. You can use that ladder however you want. But if you use that little flap that comes down as a step and the manufacturer says, don't use this as a step, you probably shouldn't use it as a step. But if you use it as a step, what's going to happen? You're going to go crashing down. You're going to break something. And this is the same thing that happens with sexuality, with marriage, God is the maker, he's the creator, he's the manufacturer. He designed this beautiful thing. And he's saying, look, this, this part, this is not a step. Go there. No, use this great, beautiful gift for what is it intended for. Use it in the way that I designed it to be used. Open the manual if you have to. God has given us a manual for sexuality and for marriage. He says, open the manual if you have to. Find out what this is made for and use it in that way. Use it for the purposes that I designed it for. Don't use it as a step. It won't go well. Just because you own the ladder, just because it's yours, just because you paid for it, doesn't mean you can use it however you want. You can, but you shouldn't. And so he goes even deeper now, Paul does in verse 14. He says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise up us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? So what he's doing here now is he's, now he's challenging and attacking their Platonism. Their idea that, oh, my body and the desires and the physicality is separate from my spirituality. Now he's saying, no, they're not. He's going right after Platonism here. 
he's, he's attacking their belief of the separation, this belief that's been shaped by their culture. Body and soul are not exclusive from one another. You're not a soul in a body. You're soul and body. That's what makes you who you are, your personality, all those things. It, it's this, this, uh, this mixture of both body and soul. It's what makes you unique. It's what makes you who you are. And sure, there's differences, of course, but they're unified. They're, they're one together. This is how you were made. You know, when, when God made Adam at first, I mentioned last week, he was just a pile of dirt, right, in, the, in, the, in God's backyard. He didn't become Adam until God breathed life into him. Then he became Adam. When Adam was separated from his body, he was just a lump of clay. But he became Adam when he was both that clay animated now by soul. But they became one. The soul and the body became one. And so Paul here is saying, he's saying, guess what? Your body actually isn't temporary like you thought. Yes, we're all going to die. Physically, we will have a time of separation from our body when our body goes back to the earth and we're separated from our body. But look what he says. God raised the Lord. He raised Jesus from the dead. And guess what? He's also going to raise up, us up by his own power. So yeah, we're going to be separated from it for a time, but eventually God is going to reunite us and he's going to raise up our body in the same exact way that he raised up the body of Jesus. So what does that mean? That means that our body is actually not temporary, but it actually is eternal. It just needs to be purged of all the sin and whatever we've done to it. This is why it has to go to death and be reunited later as it's raised up just like Christ. He goes, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? So, so this whole argument of, hey, food for the stomach, stomach for the food, God's going to destroy both. Paul's saying, no, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. You, you, you're an eternal being. And God is going to raise you up. So if you go after and just destroy and, and use this, this body however you want, that, that, that's not good. And so speaking specifically of sexual sin, he says this in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There is something unique about sexual sin. Something unique about pornography about emotional affairs and connections and sex outside of marriage and even lust in the heart. Even if all these other things are absent, even just lust in the heart. And I'm not just talking about sexual lust. I'm talking about emotional lust. Those connections you desire to have with someone who is not your spouse. There's something unique about sexual sin we saw last week the distinct purpose of sexual union and marriage, that it gives us not only something powerful to cause two physical human beings to become one, that is an amazing aspect of the gift of marriage, but it's not only just for that, but it's also intended to be a picture of the gospel, which we covered extensively last week. Sexual union in particular, marriage in particular, is meant to be a display of the gospel. This is why sexual sin is so unique compared to other sin. Because this is one that's meant to display the gospel in a particular way. So to sin against that with sexual morality is making this, this mar, this dirtiness, this filthiness upon the picture of the gospel. That's why it's so unique. And so that picture of the gospel, which we covered last week, but just as a, uh, briefly walking through that again, just as a man and a woman are separated, 
right? We, we come together, we, we meet this woman or this man that we fall in love with, and we're two separate people, very distinct, but they become one. So they're separate at first, but now they become one. In the same way, just as man is separated from God, firstly, because of our, our makeup, we're, we're not God, we're physical beings, we're created people, so already we're distinct from him in that way, but we're also separated from God because of our sin. He's a holy God, a perfect God. Sin can't be in the presence of God. He will just, it's like fire and paper. If we're in the presence of a holy God, we're just gonna disintegrate because of his holiness, his purity. And so this problem that God has, so to speak, is that he, he wants to have this union. And so what he does is he comes up with a plan. He sends his son on a mission to pay for our sin, to pay that debt. You know that debt and uh, uh, deposit that I was talking about earlier? We've incurred this debt. We think that we can make enough deposits to pay him back, but we can't. We can't. And so he sends his son to pay the debt, to make the deposit, to actually purchase us and purchase our salvation so that we would no longer be separated from God. And it's only through that purchase made by the son and the grace that he gives us and the faith that we put in him, that's how we're made one. Two who were previously eternally separated now become one. You, the church, us, and God becoming one. And God gives marriage as a specific, unique gift to demonstrate this. And so, so Paul is not necessarily saying that sexual sin is worse than any other sin. Okay, that's not necessarily what he's saying because all sin is punishable by God. But what he's saying is it's unique, it's different. There's something in particular that affects us differently than other sin. The consequences of sexual immorality are different than the consequences of other sin. And so therefore Paul says, if we become one with Christ then, if this has actually happened, should we then have oneness and union with prostitutes? So look back at verse 15 here. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? No, never. Don't you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. Now it was quite normal for the Corinthians to pay for prostitutes in their day. They had a very low picture of marriage. Marriage was for uh, childbearing, maybe for status and influence. Uh, it wasn't for, uh, they, their, their spouses weren't there for the pleasure of union. It wasn't to enjoy each other. It was just kind of more contractual. And so it was very common for uh, people to go out and find prostitutes. And, and in the, the pagan temples, uh, it was very common after visiting the temple, there'd be temple prostitutes that were offered up. Sometimes if you maybe go to a party, uh, a, a good host would offer up prostitutes at the end of the party. It's kind of like a parting gift of some sort. And this was very common, very permissible in their culture. So this is why Paul's addressing this in particular. And we might think that sounds crazy to us, but let's just think for a moment how permissive our culture, even as Christians, has become towards so much sexual sin. There are so many things that we permit sexually in even the Christian culture that would probably blow the minds of other Christians maybe 100 or 200 years ago. If they're able to look into the future and go, I can't believe what they allow, what they watch on TV, what they listen to in their music, what they do, they would be blown away. But see, for us, we're blinded to this stuff because it's normal. 
And so we might think this whole prostitution offered at dinner sounds crazy, but to them, like, it's normal. Well, what's the big deal? All things are lawful. And so for us, we have to think through our cultural blind spots, the things that we just, we just take it because everyone else is doing it. And it's been ingrained in our culture from when we were kids. So Paul's saying, do you, do you realize what you're doing? Let's, let's take a step back here. Forget about culture. Let's think through the, the biblical lens of what marriage and sexuality is actually for. Do you know what you're doing with this great, beautiful gift? Why would you willingly become one with sin? Because that's what they're doing. They're becoming one with the, this prostitute. And, he's, and this is a broader picture of just sexual morality. And even though this is about sexual sin, let's consider every other sin. Why would you want to become one with your anger? Why would you give in to your anger and pursue your anger or your bitterness? We become one with our sin. We chase after our bitterness. We want revenge because of what people have done to us. Why would you want oneness with your anxiety where you keep going after that place in your mind and you go back to that same spot and you're punishing yourself and you're building up anxiety. Why do you want to become one with your anxiety? Why do you want to become one with your greed as you just chase after more and more and more? Why would you join yourself with those things, with your lying and your manipulating? Why do we pursue these things? Somehow we feel that if I manipulate enough, I'll get what I want and then I'll be free. If I'm greedy enough and I get the, the, the dream, the American dream I want, then, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be free. But Paul's saying, why do you want to become one with these things? Did any of these things die for you? Have any of these things actually set you free from death? What do you owe these things? Why do you chase after them and worship them? They've done nothing for you and they're not going to do anything for you. Did your anger die for you and set you free from sin and future condemnation? I was looking for the word there. Did your, did your addictions really actually save you? Why do we chase after these things? Can your money actually raise you from the dead? Does it make that promise? Or do these things actually enslave you? If they don't save us, then why become one with them? Why chase after them? Why pursue them? See, church, we become adulterers against God. I'm going outside the realm of sexual adultery here. We become adulterers against God when we demand that for some reason he should give us the things that we deem are most important for our happiness. Let me say that again. I want you to listen. We become adulterers against God, committing spiritual adultery against him, when we demand to him, from him, that for some reason he should give us the things that we think are most important for our happiness. Does that make sense? When our heart demands of God that he gives us things that we think we need for happiness, now we become adulterers. All right, so here's an example. This is like telling your wife, okay, wife is the picture of God, okay, telling your wife, hey, you should hook me up with your friend, because she would really make me happy. Do you get the picture here? We say to God, hey God, if you would just give me more money, if you would just give me the life that my friends have, if you would just take away this pain, this sorrow, if you would just give me this, then I'll be happy. If you would just give me these lesser gods, these idols, then I'll be happy. Does that make sense? It's like saying to your wife, 
can you give me your friend's phone number because I think she'll make me happy. This is what we do to God. This is spiritual adultery. Saying to God, God, why didn't you give me this? Why did this happen to me? Why do they get that and I don't? When is, when is it gonna, the tide going to turn in my favor? And we're demanding to God, you should give me what I want. I deserve it. That sounds outrageous to say something like that to your wife or to your husband, but we do this to God all the time. Lord, if only I had this, then I would be happy. Then I could really worship you and give you thanks because I'll have such a great life. Then I'll be truly thankful and amazed at how good you are when you just give me good things that I want. This is blasphemy, church. And we ought not to blaspheme God by turning our eyes and our heart from him. Instead, church, we should blaspheme our idols. We should be blaspheming those other gods that we go after and we think are so important for our happiness. We should say, Lord, help me to curse my greed, not chase after it. Lord, help me to curse my apathy, my laziness, not feed it and give into it. Lord, help me to curse my lust for other women or other men. Help me curse these things rather than convince ourselves, well, it's not hurting anyone and all things are lawful for me. God, help me curse my desire for man's approval. I want to only seek after your approval. I only want to honor and glorify you. I don't want to fear man. I want to fear you. Help me curse that other God of fear of man. That's what we should be blaspheming is those gods, those idols. Because church, sin will always take you farther than you planned. You give into a little greed. You give into a little lust. It doesn't want to stop right here. It doesn't, lust doesn't want to stay in your minds. Lust wants to grow. Lust wants to get bigger and stronger. And it wants to finally end up being actions and decisions that turn into a lifestyle. That's what sin wants to do. Sin starts small in your heart, but we feed it and we justify it and we excuse it. Our greed, our apathy, our laziness, our cynicism, and it doesn't want to stay in here. It wants to control you. And so it will do anything it can to, to feed a little bit here, feed a little bit there. And as it grows, all of a sudden now you're under the control of that thing. You're being dominated by that thing. And that's exactly why Paul is speaking against this to the Corinthians. Oh, all things are lawful. No, you don't want to be controlled by this stuff. Even if it was lawful, which it's not, but even if it was, you don't want to be controlled by this. It will always take you farther than what you planned. It is a slave driver. Sin does not give you freedom. It gives you slavery. You think that when you're manipulated to get your way, it's finally going to give you satisfaction, or if you lie to get something, you think that somehow it's going to buy you freedom, but it doesn't. It brings you slavery. It dominates you. It controls you, and it will never let you rest. It'll torment you at night. It'll torment you in the morning. It'll be in the back of your head and the forefront of your mind all throughout the day because you know what you're doing. It'll punish you. Proverbs 27, 20 says, hell and destruction are never satisfied and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Don't think you can keep your sin under control because hell and destruction are never satisfied. They're never full. And the eyes of man are never satisfied. You'll always want more. You keep feeding that beast, it will grow. It doesn't work the way to just say, I'm just gonna sin a little bit and I'm gonna be done. I'm only gonna go this far and that's it. Or I'm just gonna do this, but I would never do that. It doesn't work that way. It does not 
work that way. Your eyes and heart will never be satisfied with sin. It will always crave more. You always want a little more, a little more, a little more. And so Paul reminds them of something radical here. Something very radical in verse 14 says, God raised the Lord and will also raise up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? That just as God raised Jesus from the dead, full body, in the same way we too will be raised up from the dead at some point. And by the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same exact power, and because of the same love that God has for Christ, he has that same love for us, which is a crazy thought in itself. He's also gonna raise us sinners up if we do believe that Christ alone is our savior. Now, why does he remind them of this incredible and kind of seemingly maybe unconnected truth? What does this resurrection from the dead have to do with my, my current sexual desires? He's reminding them of what Christ has done for us so that we would see our lives and see our, 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 everything about us, our desires differently, that we would see our lives and our passions differently. He says in verse 19, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. God has given you an even greater gift than sexuality. He's given you the Holy Spirit to live and dwell inside you. He makes you alive and he changes you and he works inside you. You're not your own. You might, you might think that you bought the ladder so now you can do what you want with it, but no, you're not your own because you were bought with the price. You were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. This is what Paul's pushback to them is. And so Paul reminds them, you're not your own. You don't own yourself, even though you think you do. You don't. Our bodies are meant to be temples of the living God. Church, God has chosen not to live and dwell in buildings. Right, this, isn't, this isn't God's house. This is a school. It's just brick and mortar, steel beams, electrical wire. That, that's all this is. God has chosen not to live and dwell in buildings or in a tabernacle or some beautiful church building. He, he's chosen to live and dwell inside of sinful human beings. And the only way he can even do that is because of the blood of Jesus that cleanses us. And then he sends the Holy Spirit into us to make us alive, make us born again so that he could dwell with us. God has chosen to dwell in his people, not in buildings. And so he says in verse 17, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That's the great reality for us, that marriage and sexual union is a picture of us becoming united and one with Christ. Even though every single human has sinned, we've all fallen short. We try to make it up to God by doing our deposits, but it's just not enough. In Acts chapter 17, I'd love to read this uh, with you. It'll be up on the screen. There's a few verses here, but this is actually right before Paul went and planted the Corinthian church in Acts chapter 17. In Acts 18, he plants the Corinthian church, and this is a, a trip right before the Corinthian church plant. This is also in the larger uh, Greek area. Okay, this is in Athens, so it's similar mentality, Greek mentality. And here's what he says to them. Acts 17, verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. They're, they're spiritual people, right? As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription that says, To the unknown God. So the Athenians were basically just trying to cover their bases. Okay, we've got this God, this God, this God, this God. But just in case we missed a God, we're going to have one idol, one, one thing we worship that's just for all. Any God that's out there that we missed, this is for you. 
right? That's what they're doing. They're covering their bases. What therefore you worship as unknown, you're worshiping an unknown God, but I'm going to tell you something. Because guess what? You did miss a God. And I'm going to tell you all about him right now. That's what he's doing. So I love, how, I love how Paul takes the culture, right? Whether it's all things are lawful, flips on its head. Oh, unknown God? Yep, you're right. You did miss a God. And I'm going to tell you about him right now. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. See, we can't just deposit back and earn somehow our salvation. He's not served by human hands as though he needs anything. He doesn't need your good deeds. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's the giver of all these things. Why would he need it back? And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way, again, like blind people in the dark, feel their way toward him and then find him. Yet actually he is not far from each of us. Because in him, we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, again, quoting their culture, for we are indeed his offspring. In verse 29, he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. We don't make God in our image, yet that's what we do, because we say, well, this is what we think marriage is for, this is what we think sexuality is for. We're trying to make God in our image. I think God is like this. I think this is how God views sexuality and marriage. We're trying to make God in our image. But he's saying, no, that's not how it works. God is not made by the art and imagination of man, though we try. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he's speaking of Jesus here. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, what do you mean? He's going to raise our bodies out of the dead? Because remember, these are the Greeks, right? So they're going, no, no, God's going to destroy the body. Stomach food, everything's destroyed, so I can just live it up. And so when some of them heard about the resurrection of the dead, that their body's going to be raised, some of them mocked. Oh, he, had, he doesn't know Plato, obviously. Right, they just mocked. But others said, right, we'll, we'll hear you again about this. Some guys were kind of interested, like, this is interesting. I'd like to hear a little bit more. And then Paul went out from their midst, and some actually joined him and believed. You kind of had your naysayers, you had kind of your interested, and then you had some people who actually joined him and believed. They'd never heard anything like this. Among whom also were Dionysius and Arapagite, I don't know if I did that one right, and a woman named Damaris and others with him. So Paul's saying that there's nothing that we can do to pay back God because he's not served by human hands, he doesn't dwell in temples, he doesn't need anything. There's nothing we can possibly do to pay him back, something else Radical has to happen. I've mentioned this before in Jeremiah that Jeremiah, actually the Lord speaking through Jeremiah, says, can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? The answer, of course, is no. Can a leopard change his spots? The answer is no. For an Ethiopian to change his skin, somehow he would have to find a way to be born again with a different skin color. For a leopard to change his spots, he'd have to find a way somehow to be born again as a different big cat. That's the only way that they can change what they intrinsically are. They must be born again physically and be born again as something else. This is exactly what it is for us. This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, who was a religious leader who knew the Bible, he knew the Old Testament, knew God's law, 
But he says, that's not enough. Because the answer after the question of the Ethiopian and the leopard, he says, neither can you who are accustomed to doing evil all of a sudden just be good. Because we're wired. We must be born again. We must be born again. Jesus came here to this earth, washed our feet, served us, paid the price. We couldn't pay back the debt. He actually served us. And he did this to purchase us from sin and death. God himself became one of us so that he could become one with us, that, we might, that he might save us for himself. And God intended this physical union to be a picture of the unending commitment and love of Christ towards us. And so Paul reminds them, you're not your own. You can't just declare all things are lawful. I'm the king of my own destiny. I have the ultimate say in my life and how I live it. No, church, God is king. You're not the king. You're not the, the lawgiver of your own life. He's the giver of life. He's graciously given us all things. And not only that, he's promised and made it possible to raise us from the dead and save us from hell. So we have to make a decision, just as the Corinthians did. Do we believe that God is real? Do we believe that he's the king? Do we believe that his word actually is his word? And if so, if it is his word, are we gonna adjust what we believe to him? Or are we gonna expect him to somehow adjust to us? Are we gonna go against his word and just listen to culture or what we think is our own morality, our own relativism? But if we do believe that God is real, if we do believe that this is the truth and his word really is his word, wouldn't it make sense for us to adjust to him if he really is God? That's why Paul says, as we close here, you're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So next week, we're gonna continue diving even deeper into this. But today, as we think upon our own life, not just with the topic of sexual morality, but any of the idolatrous things that we chase after, Ask yourself, what do you believe really gives you true happiness, fulfillment? What do you believe really dictates what is lawful, what is permissible? What are the things that dominate you? And as it said in Acts, God looked over the ignorant times, but now is the time to repent. We say to the Lord, Lord, we want to adjust our life, our actions, our thoughts, our heart towards you. Let's pray now and ask to work this truth into our hearts. That the good news that Christ came and even washes away and forgives us even for all of our sexual morality, all the ways that we have violated this picture of the gospel through sexual sin, God has given us Jesus to wash away even the guilt and shame and condemnation for all of that. So let's pray and thank the Lord for that and thank him for his truth today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have indeed done this great work by sending your son Jesus to die in our place, to pay the debt that we incurred, to make the deposit that we could not make so that we could be rescued from the debt that we owed you by breaking your law. You, the, the true and only lawgiver, we've become guilty before you but you sent your son and he took upon that, that wrath of all the wrongdoing we did, all of our sexual morality, 
all the greed, all the anger, everything we've ever done, he stood in that place, guilty and condemned, took on the wrath of your punishment so that we could stand before you as righteous. We make this great trade. He becomes our sin, we become his righteousness, and now we can stand with confidence before you because we know that you have forgiven us through Jesus. And we know that you've made our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings. We know that you've made these things to glorify and honor you. So help us, Lord. Help us be so amazed by what you've done through Jesus that we would not want to live our life for anything or anyone else. That we would aim to live our life and, and to live out our marriages and our families and our workplaces and, and all those things. We'd aim to live those things for your glory, to honor you and, and glorify you. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We worship you. We're grateful for the forgiveness we have in Jesus. We're thankful that we're hidden in him. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray and thank you and ask you for all these things.